Welcome to our next person that I'm going to talk about in Women of the Bible Speak. First we did Tamar, and now I'm going to talk about Ruth. This is your pastor, Yeti. Ruth 1, verses 1 to 4, and verse 22. Many of us are familiar with the story of Ruth. After all, Ruth is something of a superstar, a woman who has her own book in the Bible. In fact, Ruth is the only non-Jewish woman to have a book of the Bible named after her. Ruth is marked as an outsider from the very beginning of her story. Like Tamar, she wasn't a descendant of Abraham. She was a woman of Moab, the land on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea across from Judea. She married a young Jewish man named Mahlon, whose family has fled a disastrous famine in Judea and gone looking for a better life elsewhere. The tragedy followed the family. Her father-in-law Elimelech died shortly after the family arrived in Moab. Sometime after that, both her husband and his brother Kilion also died. Along with her sisters-in-law, Orpha, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth, became part of a grieving trio. Three women bound together in heartbreak with limited prospects for the future. The famine in Judea having ended, Naomi decided to do what many of us would probably do in that situation. She chose to head for home. Her two daughters-in-law began the journey with her. After all, who did the three women have but one another? But Naomi wouldn't hear of it. She urged the two young women to go back to their own homelands and try again. After all, they were young. They could marry again, which would give them renewed hope for family and children. Orpha agreed, but not Ruth. The first words Ruth said in this tragically beautiful story constitute a declaration of such breathtaking love and loyalty that they are still used today as an expression of ultimate devotion. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. When you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried.
Route 1, 16 to 17a. You've likely heard these steering words before, but think about what this really meant for Ruth. She was completely disavowing her former life in pledging to commit to a new country, a new home, a new people, even a new religious affiliation. It's truly remarkable. And for those who are in the process or already ended up a process in immigration, we know what we're talking about, right? It's a long process. It's difficult. And for me, it was the same. I'm from Europe. And also, I came also to the United States because I knew that God was calling me here. So I left also everything behind, but not abandoned them. I visit on a regular basis. And I even had years ago, I started a, a, my own community, which I named the House of Root. So I truly know what it means in the process of leaving and coming to a new country where you are a stranger. But if God plans, you better listen. So anyway, let's move forward. So together, Ruth and Naomi journeyed to Naomi's home country of Judea and to her home city of Bethlehem. Here is where an observant reader or a listener now will sit up and take notice because this is the first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible to an ancient Jew reading the story or listening to the story. The significance of the city is obvious. This is the city of David's birth, the home of the great king. But to a Christian reading this story, the city is much more than the home of an earthly king. It is the birthplace of the eternal king, Jesus. Ancient Christian writers associate the Hebrew meaning of the city's name, House of Bread, with Jesus, the true bread from heaven. Bethlehem is where the whole salvation story begins. So as Christians listening or reading this story, we know to pay attention. Everything that Bethlehem will come to mean for us begins right here. When a grieving immigrant woman follows her mother-in-law into a strange city. The decision to create a new family, despite the lack of a blood connection, is an important one. And it's a theme the story returns to again and again. So much of the Bible's narrative is focused on biological family and the importance of having one's own children. It's what drives Sarah and Rachel, and as we will see later in further on, Hannah and countless other men and women in the Bible to fall on their faces before God in prayer, begging for children of their own. Throughout the Old Testament, children are often viewed as the single greatest blessing. 
and we have the Book of Ruth showing us that even when that option seems out of reach, God is always waving together the unexpected. Ruth and Naomi are family, a family formed by Ruth's selfless choice. And by the end of the story, their love will have expanded outward to create even more family. And Ruth will eventually be hailed as better to you than seven sons. But we're not there yet. When Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem, they were destitute. Ruth joined in doing what the poor of that time and region did, which was to gather up the crops of barley left in the field after the reapers had moved through. Every field must have had impoverished people just like them hanging on to its margins, waiting for a few stray stalks of grain to fall. In Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10, we see God's directive to leave the edges of fields unharvested in order to help the impoverished. After a while, maybe the local people got used to seeing root the same way those of us who live in cities take the presence of the urban poor for granted. How often do our eyes glaze over at the approach of a dirty, shabby panhandler? If we think of them at all, do we wonder before quickly looking away if their own bad choices led to them? Boaz was one of those wealthy landowners, a close relative of Naomi, but to him, the poor gleaners were not invisible. He saw a new face among them and asked who she was. When he found out that this was the loyal young woman who journeyed to Bethlehem with Naomi, he insisted that she be given a protected place among the female gleaners and that she be allowed water along with the reapers. This was counter to the culture in numerous ways. Boaz was giving a foreigner, a woman, preferentially treatment. Ruth was astonished at this generosity and asked Boaz why on earth he would show her such gracious favor. Boaz's answer was simple. He was kind to Ruth because he had heard of her humble kindness. In Ruth 2, we find yet another passage of compassionate words when they are needed most. Boaz says to Ruth, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth 2, 11 to 12. Scripture often shows us God favoring those willing to leave everything for his sake. What was the first command 
God gave Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. God said, to the land I will show you. Genesis 12 verse 1. It's as if God sometimes has to pry us out of our comfort zones before he can accomplish <coughs> his purposes through us. We often need to be jostled into a radical dependence on God before we can make real spiritual progress. When Naomi found out about Boaz's extraordinary kindness to Ruth, she hatched a plan. Ruth's marriage to him. After all, Boaz was a relative of Naomi's husband, which made him a kinsman to her daughter-in-law as well. In this position, Boaz could act as a kinsman redeemer, someone willing to marry a kinsman widow and restore her position in the family. Marrying the wealthy Boaz would have been a life-changing event for an impoverished immigrant like Ruth. Naomi's plan seemed sound, but it all depended on Boaz's consent, and he could have several reasons to say no. For one thing, as we saw in the story of Tamar, marrying a woman only to have her son not count as your own for inheritance purposes was a difficult, selfless choice. Most men wanted their own wife with their own children, who would inherit their property and carry on their name. That aside, why would Boaz marry a woman who was a stranger in his country? She had no powerful family connections who could help him professionally, and these would be no advantage to him at all in such a match. He had every legitimate reason to refuse. Maybe the next part of Naomi's plan was intended to give Boaz an out if he wanted one. Ruth, a humble woman, was carefully not to put Boaz in an embarrassing public situation. During this joyful time of harvest, Boaz was sleeping on the threshing room floor with his men, likely after a party celebrating the harvest. Ruth 3 verse 7 tells us that Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirit. He stretched out near a heap of grain and closed his eyes to relax, satisfied with a good day's work. Following Naomi's plan, Ruth crept in, silently curling up at his feet, and waited. She waited all night long. Was she nervous, anxiously watching for any sign that Boaz was steering and would soon find her there? Or was her heart at peace, given that she was in the presence of a man who had already shown her incredible kindness? What would Boaz do when he woke up and found her there? He was kind to her in broad daylight, when other people were watching. Would he be different in the dark, where she alone would be privy 
to his momentous decision. She was a stranger, an immigrant, a Gentile, an outsider. Naomi considered her family, but that didn't actually make her a blood relative. Boaz had no obligations to her, not really. So what did Boaz say when he awoke and found her there? The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run away after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Ruth 3, 10 to 11. Against all odds, Ruth found security and happiness. Boaz responded to the nobility of her nature. He was clearly, deeply impressed by her. He married her, but not before another interesting twist, one that returns us once again to the team of choice. Another unnamed male relative of Naomi's had first right of refusal of Naomi's property. And her daughter-in-law. It would be a choice with lifelong consequences. Boaz alerted the man to a piece of land belonging to the late Elimelech, a partial Naomi hoped to sell. Though the man was interesting in the land, when Boaz revealed that its sale would be contingent upon this taking root in marriage, he declined. Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate, he says in Ruth 4, 6, uh, 4 verse 6. Who knows what eventually came of that man? We don't even know his name because he glides out of the story a salvation unknown forever. He passed on marrying Ruth, Ruth the ancestor of King David, Ruth the ancestor of Christ himself. He chose another path, and Boaz chose Ruth. Brave and momentous choices are everywhere in the story. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, left his homeland and made a new life for him in Moab. Naomi chose to return home after his death. Ruth made the most daring choice of all, leaving her home and family to follow Naomi in the unknown. And Boaz could have rejected Ruth just like the nameless kinsman did, but he didn't. He married her and together they built a new family. Naomi, Ruth and Boaz build a family of choice, a family that branched into the tree of life that bears our Savior. Early Christians, when they read the story of Ruth, couldn't help but see themselves in it. For them, it was more than just a nice story about a young woman who got her happy ending. Ruth's acceptance in the family of Israel spoke to them, about their own inclusion in God's family. They found in this story an echo of Paul's words 
about the Gentile church, the wild olive tree, crafted in among them and with them, a partaker of the root and path of olive tree. Romans 11, 17. Ruth chose to leave her people and her gods, just as the Gentile people choose to leave theirs. Like Ruth, they too came to the house of bread, Bethlehem, hungry for any crops they could find. And like her, they found themselves the unexpected recipients of the fullness of the promise. Ruth, like Abraham, became a powerful symbol of the riches that await those who choose to step out in faith and leave behind the comfortable in favor of the strange and spiritually challenging. Christian writers also found an echo of Jesus in the way Ruth was treated. She arrived in Bethlehem expecting to be regarded as the least of the least, but Boaz never saw her that way. He called her blessed and told her not to fear. When she lay prostrate at his feet, he lifted her up like the father of the prodigal son and celebrated her. Boaz brought her unexpected blessings and favored her. Is it any wonder that Christians see in him a reflection of the love of Christ for his Gentile church? Ruth's story strikes a powerful emotional chord in Gentile readers who see themselves in it. For ancient readers, life was not full of kinds of choices we have. Part of the story of Ruth's story lies in the idea that it is a woman making these choices. Choices for everyone were much more constrained in Ruth's time. But women's choice were particularly non-existent. Today we take for granted that women in much of the world can choose what they want to do with their lives, what they will study and where they will go to school, even whom they will marry. But we know also there's still over the globe so many countries who don't allow, where still the man is, is such a wrong power, where they even make threats to kill women and even young women, not to allow them to study, to have an enriched life, to keep them under their authority. And this is so wrong. Here you see something different. These are element, elementary choices that define basic freedom in our culture. But none of these freedoms were readily available to the women we are reading about. And they certainly weren't available to Ruth. So for Ruth to make choice, a radical choice, leaving her home country without any male protection and following Naomi to Judea would have been almost unbelievable to early readers. Her decision to do so would have underscored the power of her determination 
and the importance of choice in their own lives. So why did Ruth do it? That is the question lurking at the heart of this story. The Bible does not give us a definite answer. Some interpreters theorizes that Ruth was making a religious statement. Perhaps the years she spent as Machlon's wife and in a Jewish family had convinced her that the God of Israel was the only true God and the one she wanted to follow too. Others believe Ruth's choice was an ethical and moral one. If she had chosen not to journey with Naomi back to Bethlehem, Naomi, an elderly woman, would have had to travel alone. Ruth's act of kindness may have preserved Naomi's life. Boaz certainly seems to see her actions in this light. But might there be a lesson in the unknowns? Think about how often we get caught up in worrying about motivations, our own or something else, or someone else. What did she really mean by that? Watch, what's your angle? First Samuel 16 verse 7 tells us that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God alone knows all that motivated Ruth. But in perfect grace and mercy, her story led to redemption, hope, and the legacy of Jesus himself. When Boaz married Ruth, the elders of Bethlehem uttered a blessing upon the two of them. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah who together built the house of Israel and wrought mightily in Ephrata. She will have a name in Bethlehem. And out of the seed which the Lord will give you from this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Ruth 4, 11, verse 12. What a remarkable statement. Here at the end of the story of Ruth, the Bible specifically points us back to the story of Tamar, inviting us to see these two women in relation to each other. Because, of course, Tamar was the sixth great-grandmother of Boaz himself and the founding mother through Judah of his house. The elders of the city were asking that Boaz's family share in the fruitfulness and stability of the house of Perez, and it's tempting to see something more in that as well. The story of Tamar and Judah was also one of choice. Tamar gave Judah the opportunity, and he did the right thing. Boaz was also given an, op an opportunity by Ruth, and he too followed her lead. The bold moves of Tamar and Ruth 
caused a kind of chain reaction around them, inspiring choices that ultimately shaped history. Naomi's nameless relatives is consigned to scriptural oblivion because he doesn't step up when opportunities come calling. Maybe he was unprepared or simply not part of God's bigger plan. Each of us, though, must listen and be willing when his unexpected call comes into our lives. Both Tamar and Ruth were outsiders, women crafted into the house of Israel. They stood outside the community of covenant, and yet their actions guaranteed the continuance of the covenant. As Matthew says in his gospel, when he named both Tamar and Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the two women were key to the lineage that brought Jesus to earth. God didn't work miracles through them despite who they were, but precisely because of it. Jesus issued a warning to the comfortable of his own day when he told the Pharisees that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Matthew 3 verse 9 The family of God is not built on blood, but on choice, God's adoption of us, which we have done nothing to deserve, but also our decision to choose God. Finally, the presence of Tamar and Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus points us to a value and worth of the work of women, especially in a world that did not always see that value. Ruth bore Boaz a son, and the women of Bethlehem rejoiced with Naomi. The women said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous through throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Ruth 4, 14-15 What a shocking statement that must have been to ancient readers. A woman better than sons, a woman who wasn't even related by blood better than seven sons. But the Christian reader finds in these words not just the glad rejoicing of Naomi, who has at least and at last found peace, happiness, and love, but also the faint, far-off glimmer of the kingdom of Christ. In the kingdom, we see drawing here. The last will be first, and the first will be last. The despised and rejected will be the guests of greatest honor, and many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ruth and Naomi in the kingdom of heaven. 
So let me give you some questions for Tamar and Ruth's study. First, the story of Tamar and Ruth both have to do with intermarrying, the marriage of a Jew to a non-Jew. Given what we know about the history of people of Israel, and the Bible tells us to us, why was marrying outside of Israel seen as bad? Second, look at Numbers 25, that is in the Old Testament, and the story of Pinias, the sons of Aaron. What is it that Phineas does? Read Psalm 106, 28-31. And the records of Phineas' actions there. Why is Phineas so celebrating in the Bible? What threat did he prevent? How is that threat reversed in the cases of Tamar and Ruth? 3. The only sons of Jacob was learn anything personal about our Joseph and Judah. Both the Joseph story and the Judah story features women involved in illicit sexual activities. Potiphar's wife in the case of Joseph, Genesis 19, 1-23, and Tamar in the case of Judah, Genesis 38, 1-30. Even though both these women engage in questionable activity, what are the differences between them? How does the Bible portray them differently? What changes the women work in Joseph and Judah? Four, and the last one, Ruth's remarkable story shows us so much of what is best in humanity. Ruth's loyalty, Naomi's devotion, Boaz's generosity and kindness in it, the action of good people are rewarded. The story is set in the time of biblical judges. And we know from the book of Judges, which immediately precedes Ruth, what a violent period this was in Israel's story. And most of the stories in Judges are of human beings at worst, at their worst. Why would Ruth's have been an important story to tell? God makes no direct appearance in the story. Where is he in Ruth's story? So, my dear ones, we are on the end of Tamar and Ruth. The next in line will be Deborah and Yael, women of valor. Well, that's for another time. So, enjoy when you look back. When you listen or you're going to read the book of Ruth, enjoy it. And place yourself right in the middle of that story in the 21st century. Or maybe a while back where your immigration process started or your journey with Christ. May the peace of God be with you and stays with you. And may his light shine upon you and keep you safe. This is your Pastor Yeti. Bye-bye, and God bless. Enjoy your day.